Well, good morning. And thank you to Alice for leading us. I don't know about you, but um, personally, I'm somewhat disappointed we have arrived at the final installment of what I can only describe as one of the most exciting stories in the whole of Scripture. This has been a special series of sermons, uh, and on your behalf this morning, I want to thank David, young David, Wednesday night, where's Ryan? How much did he pay you? (laughs) Young David. (laughs) But I do want to thank David for taking us on this journey in recent weeks. The story of Joseph is special. I think it would be true to say that few other stories are allocated as many chapters or pages as the life of Joseph. It's a story that appeals to children as well as adults. A story of a goodie winning over a body. A story that has captured the imagination of millions, even in the world of theater going, where despite some obvious inaccuracies, it has been a real blockbuster. It's a story full of adventure, full of intrigue, full of suspense, and full of quite a number of unanswered questions as our fellowship group has recently observed. And there will be questions this morning at the end if you want to take them away with you. It's such a well-written story. Indeed, one of our members reckons it's the kind of story that would have won the Booker Prize of its day had there been such a thing. The story of Joseph comes at the end of the beginnings, the end of the book of Genesis a book which introduces us to four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. But Joseph is very different from the other three. God calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, but nowhere do we read of God calling himself the God of Joseph. There's no record of angels appearing to Joseph. And unlike the others, there's no record of Joseph being spoken to directly by God. Joseph receives dreams and is given the interpretation of dreams. But he never actually receives direct communication from God as the other three patriarchs do. Indeed, that was one of the main points made by David back at the beginning of our series when he produced this particular slide. It's a story about the absent presence of God. And David went on to helpfully remind us of the quotation from Pete Wilcox, which says, The life of faith mostly involves trust in a presence of God, which is elusive. And surely Joseph's story is one in which God and God's purposes must have seemed extremely elusive, to say the least a special son of his father, an obedient, respectful son, but a son who was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery by them for a few shekels of silver. And then eventually, you'll recall, his worth was recognized by Potiphar. He was trusted, and he proved worthy of that trust. And then, bang, it all changed. Potiphar's wife accused him of rape, and he found himself in another period of darkness. This time the darkness of the prison, 
and a time of again being misrepresented and falsely accused. Imagine how he must have felt. Imagine how you would have felt. But eventually, as we heard a few weeks ago, the one who said he would remember him, the cupbearer, the butler, eventually did so, did so, but not until two years later. Then you'll recall life took on a brighter outlook and Joseph found himself promoted by Pharaoh to be prime minister of Egypt. Thirteen years after he had been put in that pit by his brothers. Last week we looked at the two journeys Joseph's brothers made to Egypt to buy corn. And we saw over these past two weeks how they were treated by the prime minister of Egypt. In verse 33 of chapter 43, you'll recall that they were all seated before the prime minister. Now remember that although we know the identity of the prime minister, they didn't. But they are all seated at the banquet in order of age from the oldest to the youngest. And this is the first time in 20 years that all 12 brothers have been in the same place at the same time. But only one was aware of that. And that one was Joseph. And what an opportunity Joseph had to get his own back. My goodness, what a position he was in to get his own back. And don't tell me that you and I wouldn't have liked to see them get a bit of their own medicine. Because we would. We're like that. We're human. So let's turn to chapter 44, page 49 in the Pew Bibles. Genesis chapter 44. And at page 49. And when we come to chapter 44, here in these opening verses, we find Joseph turning the heat up again on his brothers. This time in verse 1 he says, Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. Again put their money back in their sacks. But this time put my silver cup in the mouth of the bag of the youngest one's sack, Benjamin's sack. And that's what the servant did. And then you'll notice at verse 3, the brothers went off on their homeward journey. But yet again, they didn't get very far until they were overtaken by one of Joseph's men and asked to open their sacks of food. They were immediately accused of stealing yet again. And not only was it the money that they were accused of stealing, but worse still, they were accused of stealing the Prime Minister's silver cup. When we get to verse 7, they make great pleas of innocence and with great confidence in their innocence, they suggest that if the cup is found to be in any of their sacks, then whoever owned that sack would forfeit his life and the rest would become slaves. Verse 12. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest. Remember the order of verse 33 of chapter 43, beginning with the oldest and ending up with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Gotcha. Can't you picture it? Gotcha. Now he has them just where he wanted them. Or was it? Yes, that's probably how we would have felt. Got you where I want you. But I want to suggest that that's exactly what Joseph was not doing. Now, 
I'm quite happy for you to come afterwards and argue with me on this one. What I believe Joseph was doing here was testing his brothers. Why? Come back with me again to verse 34 of the previous chapters. The previous chapter. Chapter 43, verse 34. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. Why? Test number one. Benjamin now has the position of favorite son of the father. Were the brothers still the kind of men who were motivated by jealousy? Their jealousy of Joseph had caused them to sell him into slavery. How would they then react to Benjamin being singled out and shown favoritism? Test number two. Remember what they had said in verse 9. If any of us is found guilty of having the silver cup, then he must die, and the rest of us will be your slaves. A test, if you like, of self-preservation. So verse 10, we read, Okay then, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. And the supreme test of their character came when the incriminating cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Years before, they had all gladly sold their favored brother into slavery and abandoned him. Yet notice the difference now. When Benjamin was found to be guilty in verse 13, they all went back to Egypt with him. And they were ready to offer themselves as slaves to the prime minister. So let's read from chapter 44 and let's commence reading at verse 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to one of them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now the Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I can see for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down only if our youngest brother is with us. Will we go? We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore bore me two sons. 
One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed that the boy's safety to my, guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt at verse 14 when his brothers, every single one of them, returned and fell prostrate before him? It wasn't just the fulfillment of his dream. It was more than that. Perhaps, after all, there was the possibility these men had changed. These men had learned their lesson. Was it possible these men were indeed more concerned about their younger brother and their aged father than they were about themselves. But did you notice who the spokesman was when they were ushered into the Prime Minister's presence, called to give an account of themselves and what they had done? Yes, Judah steps forward. And he says in verse 16, What can we say to my Lord? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Now note where the apostrophe is here. It's after the S. We, we are now, my Lord's slave. Corporate responsibility. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. And don't miss the force of these words. What Judah is really saying is that although they are innocent of the crime that they're now accused of, they are guilty of a much worse crime, and God is now punishing them for it. And now Joseph gives them one more chance to take the path of self-preservation because in verse 17 we read, But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave, and the rest of you go back to your father in peace. And it's Judah again who steps up, and in verses 18 to 29 explains how all of that will affect the aged father. We just read it. He says in verses 30 and 31, See, so now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. And Judah now pleads with Joseph to allow Benjamin to return home with his brothers and that he will personally take a place of Joseph's slave. And in verse 32 he says, Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, If I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Here stands a man, Judah, 
who back in chapter 37 had convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. And Judah is now offering himself to be a slave. Surely Joseph can be in no doubt he is truly repentant. He has definitely changed and he is sorry for what he has done and that he can be trusted. And before we move into chapter 45, let me say just three very brief but very simple yet important things about trust. Number one is that trust is a very precious commodity. Trust is a precious commodity and one we ought to treasure greatly. It takes years to develop trust. But however, as we see here, it can be destroyed by a single self-centered act. Secondly, when we do something to violate the trust that others have on us, we must seek to do all we can to restore it because trust can only be restored by complete honesty. And thirdly, trust must be earned. It is not simply granted. Often those who are trying to rebuild trust that they have somehow, somewhere destroyed, they will very often demand, listen, you just need to trust me. The truth is you need to prove that you can be trusted. And that's what Joseph is doing and that's what Joseph is looking for here. That's what he's looking for here in the testing of his brothers. Now let's move to chapter 45, a chapter for me which is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole of Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, let's read it. Let's commence at verse 1 and we'll read at least down to verse 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the, honored, all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen. And bring my father down here quickly. 
Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Picture the scene here at verse 1 of chapter 45 from Joseph's perspective. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. Joseph had decided that the time had arrived to tell them who he was. His questions were all answered. His brothers had told the truth. And most important of all, he believed their hearts had been changed. But picture the scene from the brothers' perspective. Without knowing what the prime minister intended to do, let alone who he was, they saw he was visibly upset and saw him send everyone out of the room. The brothers already were filled with fear as they awaited his decision concerning what they had done. But then this man made a statement that must have totally blown them away. I am Joseph. The response is silence. In verse 3, we're told that his brothers were not able to answer them because they were terrified in his presence. When Joseph's brothers heard these words, they were so stunned and so overwhelmed with fear that they couldn't speak. They have nothing more to say. They have no appeals left. They have no hope for mercy. But don't miss the impact of what happens in verses 4 to 8. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So And get these words. It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Joseph did more than reveal his identity. He revealed his whole perspective on what had happened to him. Notice the two words that change everything. And if you miss everything else this morning that I share with you, please do not miss these two words. But God. But God. Joseph says, you sold me, but God sent me. And at verse 5, seeing God at work in his life had prevented Joseph from being bitter. What a great attitude Joseph displays. And it's that word attitude that made all the difference in his life. Attitude. And how important attitude is for each and every one of us. What's my attitude this morning to what's happening in my life? What's your attitude this morning to what's going on in your life? Here's what some of the great movers and shapers of the world have had to say about attitude. Thomas Jefferson, the former president of the United States, said, Nothing can stop the man with the right mental attitude from achieving his goal. 
Nothing on earth can help the man with the wrong mental attitude. Winston Churchill, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. And this one I love from Jesse Jackson, the American civil rights activist and Baptist minister. Today's students can put dope in their veins or hope in their brains. If they can conceive it and believe it, they can achieve it. They must know it is not their aptitude, but their attitude that will determine their altitude. I love that. I love that quote. But let me sum it up. Attitude determines outcome. Attitude determines outcome. Joseph's attitude gave him the assurance that God took all the evil intentions of his brothers and overruled them for good. And believers today have the assurance of Romans 8.28, and I know that this is a verse that many, many treasure. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But I love the NIV translation. We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. This scripture doesn't say that all things are good, but that God causes all things to work together for good. And folks, believe me, I've wrestled with this verse this week. I've wrestled with it especially as I've taken into account some of the situations which many of you worshiping here this morning face in your walk with God and your service for God. It simply isn't good enough for me to throw Romans 8 and 28 at you and suggest everything is going to be okay. Like Joseph, you must wonder why the twists and the turns of life are happening and are being permitted. But I trust that you, like Joseph, will one day be able to understand that God is behind all of the circumstances of your life, not causing them, but using them. Joseph then tells his brothers to go and get their father Jacob and all of their families and come to live in the land of Goshen. That's in verses 9 to 10. And then at verses 14 and 15, when he had said this, he fell on the neck of his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. You know, surely this has got to be one of the most tender scenes that we find in the whole of Scripture. The scene of Joseph embracing and kissing those brothers who have wronged him is unsurpassed in the Bible, perhaps with the exception of the Lord himself loving and even kissing the one who had betrayed him. And Joseph has given us a wonderful model of forgiveness. But don't be fooled. As David very rightly said last week, forgiveness can be hard. Forgiveness isn't easy, especially when you face the offender. But is it not true that we often make forgiveness even more difficult than it already is by making false assumptions about the meaning of forgiveness? And I want to make just three points about a subject that is huge in its own right. And a subject we can't do justice to here this morning. And the three points are these. Number one, forgiveness is not overlooking the wrong. 
you read again verses 5 to 8, they remind us that Joseph didn't pretend that nothing had ever happened. But we really need to go to chapter 50 to get the real impact of how Joseph felt. Some years later, and we'll be going there in a moment or two, in chapter 50, Joseph lets us know how he really felt at that time when he clearly says, you meant it for evil, but God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph didn't minimize the wrong that they had done. And forgiveness is not excusing the wrong. Forgiveness is not finding excuses for the wrong that was done. What happened was not the result of a bad home environment, poverty, or any of the other things that society happily uses to excuse sin. Forgiveness is not minimizing the wrong. Nowhere does Joseph say, listen, boys, don't worry about it. It wasn't that big a deal. Forgiveness never meant that Joseph had to minimize the pain of what had happened to him. Forgiveness is not taking the blame for the wrong. Joseph didn't say, it's okay, guys. I knew it was my fault. I knew I should never have worn my fancy-colored robe into the field. I should have never told you about those dreams. Forgiveness didn't mean that Joseph had to take the blame for what had happened. No matter what Joseph said or did, it did not excuse what his brothers had done. And extending forgiveness is hard. But forgiveness is a decision to bring pain to an end. And in order to forgive, I must let go of my resentment, my bitterness, my hurt, my pride. Here's a quote I came across this week. The miracle of forgiving is the creation of a new beginning. It does not always take away the hurt. It does not deny the past injury. It merely refuses to let them stand in the way of a new start. And Joseph's brothers must have left Egypt enormously encouraged by the grace that has been shown them. But how much of it had been appropriated in their lives. And that leads me to the third point about forgiveness. Forgiveness must be accepted. Even years later, after they had brought their father Jacob down to Egypt, where he eventually died, they were still afraid that Joseph might want to get revenge against them. They still haven't fully accepted the forgiveness that has been extended to them. They once again allowed guilt to have a real grip on them. There was no doubt in their minds that the death of their father could mean a sudden reversal of Joseph's forgiveness towards them. And here we go forward again to chapter 50 of Genesis. And at verse 15 we read, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before them. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God 
There's those two words again. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children that he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Here they are still living in the fear of their past, still rehearsing past sin, which had already been forgiven by Joseph. And here they are years later, and Joseph is still reassuring his brothers that they have been forgiven. And is it not true that often in life, the last one we forgive is ourself or ourselves? And I think that is exactly what these brothers are still fighting with. And as Chuck Swindle says in his book on Joseph, guilt clings to the side of the boat, clawing for a foothold long after grace has come on board and begun to steer. Joseph's heart is broken as he realizes that his brothers have not accepted the forgiveness they had given them earlier. They are living under a burden of guilt for sins that have already been forgiven. How about you? Have you allowed yourself to be forgiven? Are you living as if you have been forgiven? Remember, you'll be able to forgive when you begin to look for the hand of God at work in your circumstances. I wonder how many times Joseph must have looked at his circumstances and wondered, was there any hope for this seemingly hopeless situation? Rejected by his own family, put in the pit, sold as a slave, falsely accused, put in the prison. Yet through it all, there was hope, a greater hope, a hope in a sovereign God who was working out his purposes and his will. 